When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, the colours, the paint, the black and white, the lighthouse dwellings that are there, all of that is very typical of the, the type of um, houses that we, we lived in when we were kids, lighthouses, the lighthouse dwellings for the families. So it's, it's quite typical. It's, it's, a, it's not a typical lighthouse tower itself, the hook. It's, a, it's an older one. It's the oldest one in the country, apparently. But, uh, yes, it's situation jutting into the sea surrounded by the, the walls the whitewash the design of the, the lightkeeper's houses, all of that is very typical yeah, I would, uh, I would feel a connection with this, with this type of place, definitely yes. This is the, the original building here. Yeah, oh, yes, this, this, this is the, uh, the uh, building, building that was built in 1974 and structurally hasn't changed since. And these are the, the ceilings, as you can see, are a very unique feature. They are corbelled. They're corbelled dome ceilings. They were a particularly Norman type of building. And uh, this place was built by William Marshall. Earl of Pembroke, and uh, he uh, founded the Port of the Ross, and he built this place as a um, fire tower. And it's still on the old <coughs> uh, charts, uh, 1600, around that time, as a fire tower. And the, the monks who have been out on the point here from uh, uh, 452, they were with him, moved them in here, and they were the I suppose the, the, the forerunners, the lightkeepers, <coughs> until um, the middle of the 1500s, uh, when Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries. The monks disappeared from here at that stage. And um, the Irish life then came to be in about, um, I think it was about 1868, and uh, they split from the ballast office, which controlled the port of Dublin. And um, we've been under the uh, control of commissions of Irish lights since. I was born at Galley Head Lighthouse and 
uh, we then moved to Ballycotton. And um, the first lighthouse I actually lived at or have a memory of would be Clare Island Lighthouse. There were a limited number of small island lighthouses generally where the wife of the keeper uh, was the female assistant keeper and uh, so that my mother was also a lighthouse keeper but really it goes back to my great great grandfather Um, it was it was just part of life it was the thing to do I just didn't consider doing anything else. That was it. You just grew up with it. And that it was the thing to do. Well, the fact that I suppose that I was born under the light, you might say, of, of, of the hook here. And uh, thanks for all young fellas. I was attracted to uniforms. And I saw fellas going down on bicycles at that time, uh, wearing their uniforms. And of course, then my father was in the light ships. So there was a, he would have been the first of the uh, the family to, to, to be in Irish lights. And I suppose that that that, that it followed on from there. But uh, it mainly I used to come up here, you know, I went to school with the kids of the families from here and you would be up here after school playing with them and they would be down around the village. And that's the way I suppose I mainly I became associated with with the with the lighthouse here and, and the, the the light service. And I remember um uh, one of the AKs here, huge fellow called Eugene Gillen, he's, he's gone to his reward since, giving me a cap badge, and I thought it was the most prized possession that <laughs> I, I could I could have. My father was a light keeper, lighthouse keeper. Um, well, my father was a lighthouse keeper, and after many years uh, on, on a variety of lighthouses throughout the, the country and around the coast. He died literally, I'd say, within a month of his due retirement. He was due to retire, I think, in, in, uh, in March or early April, and he died in February. So he had almost come ashore before he died. I hadn't an idea about what the lighthouse service was. In fact, I always thought a, a king and queen lived in the lighthouse in the bay because it was all painted white and there were princesses and everything there. That's when I used to view it from the front door when I was young. The first uh, I began to know about the lighthouses was um, I met um, Brendan, my husband. He first told me about the lighthouse service. He told me that he had passed the examination and he would be called up sometime to be a lighthouse keeper. So that day eventually came in 1943. He was called to the lighthouse service. We got married anyway in 1946 and he was now stationed at Rattlin O'Byrne Island a lighthouse out on an island of Donegal. And the, the houses, the dwellings, as they were called for that lighthouse, were in Glencullum Kill. So I was living in Galway, married him, and went to live in Glencullum Kill. 
Oh, I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. And I didn't understand it either. It, the rule was that you were left there for so long and you were transferred to another station. There was a whole change around the coast. Different people went to different places and they had their own system of moving you. And we were there for three years. Our first baby was born there and um, born at home without anybody being with me. And it's buried in Glencoe, Killowee Boy. It was a very tough job for, for men to do, and it was very tough on the families, it was very tough on the, the wives that they left behind. I think it took a particular type of person. There were romantic aspects to it. There has there has to have been. Um, I I think that there was there, there's a certain uh, security and and about towers about lighthouse towers and there's a the the kind of naval tradition of you know keeping brass polished and keeping all engines in working order and uh, the 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 lantern the 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 lantern tower itself in at the top of the tower there's um there's something very um solitary about that uh, about the buildings themselves and the men that worked in them obviously would have been affected by that too but i would see as as um i think as a son of a lighthouse keeper i would see more of the the non-romantic side of it i have to say um you know, I think, as I say, it took a particular type of person to be able to cope with solitude on, on isolated rocks and be able to step away from their family and, you know, survive out there and then come ashore. You know, it really was two lives, I feel, that they were leading. Uh, they wouldn't have continued doing it if, if there wasn't some romantic element to it. But uh, it was t I would see it as tough more than romantic, really. Initially, it went with boat reliefs, which when the ships were leaving, um, you would do, technically, you went on duty for six weeks. But because of weather conditions, you could be three months. And then you came home, and you had 14 days at home, and then you went back <laughs> for another six weeks. Your, your function was to safeguard the mariner. And that consisted of, first of all, maintaining the light and the fog signal at maximum capability and power. And uh, for that reason, there was four hours maintenance each day. And um, that would consist of making sure the light was working to maximum capacity cleaning the engines making sure the engines were ready at any moment for fog signal or whatever and again of course maintaining the structure to some extent and um, again maintaining the landings and the equipment derricks and that kind of thing um, for landing stores and indeed men uh, on some of the rocks and then of course yes Yes, you did uh, four hours duty, 
our watches would start, for instance, at 6 o'clock in the morning. One, one man would be on from 6 o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock in the morning. And he then stayed on that duty, and again 6 o'clock in the evening to 10 o'clock at night. He stayed on that duty for one week. And the watches were changed then on Sunday. The next watch then, of course, was 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock. Morning and afternoon and night and early morning again. And then the other watch, the graveyard watch, as we used to call it, 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock. That was 2 o'clock in the afternoon to 6 o'clock in the evening and 2 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the morning. You had three categories of stations in the main. You had the, the likes of the hook here, which was uh, termed as a land station. Then you had um, the islands, like Varn Moor, Arran Islands, Rackland. But then you had the outline rocks. And the outline rocks were, were a pretty, um, they, were, they were pretty hostile and very isolated. I suppose I did 12 years at the, on the Bull Rock. The Bull Rock was off of Dursey Island, um, down on the Cork Kerry border. And that was just a, 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 a rock, um, 300 feet out of the water, with um, a cave through the middle of it, uh, big enough that, that fishing boats could, could go through the cave. But in bad weather at night, the roar of the seas through that place, it, was, it sounded like the depths of hell. And when I went there in 1963, I was appointed there. And the um, helicopters weren't introduced until 69. It was boat reliefs at the time. And um, your chances of being relieved on time during the winter months was pretty slim. And I remember on one occasion, I think about 1964, going back to Castletown the day after Boxing Day and not getting back here home again until the end of March. We were four. We were three weeks, I think, in Castletown waiting to get out, and then I was nine weeks and two days on the rock. I suppose you wouldn't step out on the bull three days in the year, in the midsummer even. You had a rise and fall there all the time. There was a, about, um, I suppose, about 20 square yards of vegetation on the top of it, but... Um, the only walk you had was uh, there was a passageway down the front and that meant retracing your steps every you know it's about 20 yards long that was the only exercise you would get on it you you, you adjusted um, I mean you had you had diverse personalities uh, in the service but uh, you just had to adjust otherwise it would it, it would be intolerable uh, situation on a rock and you had to um, you had to anticipate fellas moods and try and um, try and work around them and work with them. It it was the only way for 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 a working environment. When I came on the scene, when I was born first, um, we were based in Clifton in County Galway at the time, and he was on a land uh, or a lighthouse nearby, but. Um, Shortly after that, we moved to Valencia Island in Kerry, and again, he was. We were in the the dwellings on the on the island. He was away in a lighthouse. Now I don't have memories of the man at all at that point, but we were transferred then to Inishone, which was a beautiful land station lighthouse in Donegal. And uh, yeah, my earliest memories of my father are of us living as a family on that lighthouse the lighthouse next door to that. There were actually two towers in Inishon, but uh, 
the smaller tower was right next to the house we were living in the house right beside the lighthouse um, it was a very idyllic place to live and uh, very self-sufficient people both my mother and father uh, they would have grown lots of vegetables uh, would have had wonderful vegetable gardens um, gathering seaweed to fertilise for potatoes in another field and so on but uh, they were very happy memories I must say early months. And straight from Glencurnum Kill down to the Skelligs down in Kerry. Well, not onto the Skelligs. I lived down Valanche Island and Brendan went away to the Skelligs, which was 15 miles out at sea. And he had to go out there for six weeks. But it was seldom that he was six weeks away. It usually ran into eight nine, ten, and bad weather, could be twelve. And you'd still only get home for two weeks. But they, that was what they called a very hard rock. I was at the Skelligs, and we were changed up to Dunleary, and we went back from Dunleary, and we were at another house, and Brendan was out on the Tearit Lighthouse, which was another awful lighthouse. It's on one of the Blasket Islands. It's a hard lighthouse to get at and you, a lot of times Brendan came home and he'd be, you know, his clothes would be all wet because they used to lower them in a, I think it's a bosun's chair and it, like just miles down, very high and miles down to the water and the small boat there that had been launched off the, the relieving ship when you look down at it, it was only very small and they'd have to judge to drop the man into it at the right time. It was, you know, and the boat would be coming up and sometimes the boat would go down and the sea would be coming and the man would get all wet. Maybe you go to the side of it if the wind took him. Uh, I went to Clifton in County Galway and I was delighted because I was 50 miles from home now and I thought this would be heaven. But um, we, we were moved after about, I'd say, a year and a half. And we were moved up to Inishowen. But when I was seven or almost eight anyway, um, we were transferred to Dundalk. Um, that meant all of us uprooting from school. There were six in the family at that stage, six children. Um, Three, if not four of us were at school, primary school, and we transferred to Dundalk. And we lived in the, again, the lighthouse dwellings in um, in the town, or down on the coast near the, just slightly outside the town. My father was in the lighthouse in the bay, a pile light, it was known as, it was on stilts, um, stilts into the sandbank in uh, the channel coming into Dundalk Bay. But things were changing in the lighthouse service really at that point as well and shortly afterwards and I don't think families were prepared to make so many moves and after a number of years on the light in Dundalk Bay my father was transferred and we didn't move this time. Um, my father moved after that. He moved to Arnmore Lighthouse off the coast of Donegal. He was on Rathlona Burn Lighthouse after that and uh, he was transferred then to the Kish in Dublin Bay. I see now. What? 
two, three, four, five, six, six. But I made a double move in Clifton, say seven. I moved into seven different houses. And that was, um, I think I'm right down on that. Well, we're on the first balcony. Um, as you can see, there's two balconies on the lighthouse. This is the lower one. Uh, from here up is completely Irish lights. And as you can see, you have a magnificent view over Waterford Harbour. And east towards Kilmore and the Salty Islands. And um, right north from here, you can see Loftus Hall. The, um, mansion down there where the devil was supposed to have appeared um, so the story goes anyway and uh, due west then we have Dunmore East uh, Dunmore East the major fishing village on the water side of the estuary and you can see that there's no trees whatsoever um, on the whole peninsula and uh, the reason for this folklore says that um, the monks cut them all down for the fires here um, and uh, and they went, uh, this was a fire tower. This would be would have been the actual top of the tower. This was this this was the height of the tower when it was built in 1172. The um, this structure uh, from here that houses the lantern uh, that was built in um, 17 about 1780 um, when the, when the, when the lantern was constructed. Um, but actually, when they were digging the foundations here for this part. They were supposed to have found the cinders from the fires at, at this level here, where they would have, um, where, the, uh, where the monks would have had the fires lit at night. This part was arched up here, and the arches went up about about 15 foot, and the the, the arches it was slitted all around, so the fire could be seen from different points through the slits. So that makes sense because it's, it, 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 it would seem to be the only way that you would keep a fire lighting at night up here. There, there's a reference up in Dublin, um, someone discovered in, a, in, a, in some of the museums, a contract for some coal importer to deliver coal to the top here in 1602. Um, and I think it was something like three ninepence or something a ton uh, delivered to the top here. Right. It was hard. You were always kind of on your own and your mind was out on the lighthouse kind of thinking and wondering and wondering. It was an awful wrench every time when he just let, he got ready and left. And as time went on, I don't think it improved anything because there'd be always tears and, you know, and there'd be always saying, I, I'm going to get a shore job, this was always the thing. Now, shore jobs were scarce in that line, the type of work they did. I mean, what would you get a shore to do? But saying that now, Brendan always said, and all the men in his time, said they were in that job because it was a job. And it was a good job then. 
but it was a very hard and lonely job too. With the really great have done it, you know, and stuck it out. But they said, well, that was the way it was. And a lot of it was handed down. The father was a light keeper, so the son would have been, and two or three of the sons maybe, and that's the way it went down through families. But uh, when he went away, like you were, you were picking up the pieces nearly for a week. You were kind of trying to get the things together for nearly a week, and then you were back in your routine again and working your own way. And uh, then he was back again. Great joy when he was coming, all spring cleaning and everything, been turning excitement of knowing. And then again, way again. And then it came to this, with me anyway, it came to the stage that I knew he was coming. And I knew it was going to be long, but that he was going again. And, you know, you were pulled and tugged this way and that way. You know, he felt it. And he never wanted to go. There was already, a week before he went, in the end, he was getting into that lamenting stage, you know. It mentally, it, 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 was, it, it was, was pretty hard. And, and you know, it, it was the worst time the first week on the rock then as well first weekend especially was really it was was really hard after you, after you had left home but the funny thing about about rock life i found um before the helicopters when when um, when there were boat reliefs and you were maybe eight nine weeks on the rock that after six weeks that you were totally institutionalized and the strange thing about it was that you didn't mind after that at the time um, I, I that's what I found, and a lot of other uh, people will tell you the same thing, that um, it became easier uh, after six or seven weeks. That you know that that was your world, and um, the outside world it really didn't impinge on you. Um, some people would go into long, long silences. Others would prefer if there was anywhere to walk, to walk by themselves on occasions. Um, others handled it by remaining talking all the time and wanting companionship and whatever. One man became mentally deranged and finished up in a mental asylum. Dundalk, we were near to the town, although again we lived in the lightkeeper's dwellings, which was a little bit outside of town. Yes, my father was on lighthouse, on the in the, the local lighthouse in Dundalk Bay, so um, he was away for periods of time. And again, when he was transferred after that to, let's say, Ironmore, he would have been away for six weeks and home for two weeks. So yes, that was a huge, a huge change. Um, he tended to, you know, visit the school, let's say, when he came home, just to make sure you were keeping up with your, your lessons and uh, things like that. He, he had to make an effort when he came ashore to, um, to kind of keep in touch with what we were all doing, I felt. 
then it came to special things like birthdays, which you kind of make the best of, first communions. To be missing for those things was hard. And confirmations and different things like that. But as years went by, you found there were terrible problems, like bringing up children there were problems and the father wasn't there. And you had to find the answer and you had to deal with it and everything. And then I discovered as years went on, the father would come home and he'd throw the cat among the pigeons of all you'd have done. And I had, I had to say often on times, look, you're away all the time and this is the way we work and you'll just have to accept the way we have it here. There were no phones. Uh, we didn't have a phone in our house. And uh, I think getting a phone was a big deal at that time as well. But um, I remember him, when he was ashore, the, the radio was tuned to uh, shipping stations. And, uh, you know, you'd have some obscure tunings there. And, uh, you know, shipping forecasts, shipping news, uh, information about Dogger Bank and Finisterre and lots of uh, exotic names coming over the airways. But... Uh, there was a mark on the radio that uh, at a certain time each day my mother used to tune into. She used to tune the radio into this frequency and this wavelength. And my father used broadcast to the house. Um, he, he had his own, uh, like a signature tune where he whistled prior to talking. And uh, you'd know at, at a certain time you tuned into the frequency that this was him. You know, he'd start off with what we used to reckon was kind of lighthouse talk really you know he'd, he'd start talking about the weather and uh, ships that might have been passing or what he observed but uh, he'd soon get down to uh, issuing orders to to uh, the kids in the house just making sure that we were towing the line um, you know my older brother might have been told to sweep the yard somebody else would have been given the job of clearing out drains and getting rid of leaves and so on uh, making sure that we got haircuts before he came ashore, this type of thing. It really was an attempt, I felt. Um, well, looking back on it, it was really an attempt by the man to maintain fatherhood or maintain some sort of authority um, on us kids while he was away. Come home and he'd try and change it his way. I don't want that long hair and I don't want this. You do this and you do that and... Oh, you'd be pulled and towed, tattered and torn. And many a time when I was leaving him away to Monaghan and Cavan and places, you'd have to get a connection to Donegal. I used to say to him, listen, why can't we have it that you go away in the humour, same good humour you come home in? Everything was great when he came home. There was sweets and bars of chocolate and everything. But going away, there was that kind of a strain. But it was strain on him too. He didn't want to leave. He didn't want to go. He wanted to be home, but he couldn't be. He knew he had to go. I knew he had to go. And it, it started the week even. I think I understand some of the, the stresses the man must have encountered in the job that it was an attempt 
really to maintain contact, I suppose, with his own kids. Um, as well as, you could say, impose authority. You know, there was obvious conflicts being away from home and being isolated on, on uh, lighthouses and trying to pick up the pieces when he came home. But um, I suppose in retrospect, it was a metaphor for the relationship between the two of us, really. Um, one, way, one way broadcasting, really. And you lived for the month on the rock, you lived for this month or whatever at the time or a fortnight whatever it was and then after when you were home for your month after a fortnight you had this uh, going back again facing you and the last week or so you know you were you were they said you weren't everyone remarked the fact that you weren't, weren't in great humor so it it, it, it even your month ashore like you know you, you still had the you, you still had the the, 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 the um, problem that you were heading back again for another month and with with small kids like it was it, it was heartbreaking, you know, going away and, and uh, for a month. Yeah, I remember coming coming home from Wicklow Head and my son was um about two and he was in one of these uh, walkers and when I walked in he disappeared in under the table in the walker, crying. He didn't he didn't, <laughs> didn't know even who I was. <laughs> Out of uh, forty one Christmases. I had fifteen at home, so that wasn't a, that wasn't a great record, really. But really, the only time I had um, full time, let's say, with my family, was while I was stationed at Blackhead for five years. So for that five-year period, uh, it was living with the family in the normal way. But other than that, uh, it was fragmented. I found that difficult, especially when the children were small. I found it quite difficult. And in fact, uh, coming home had its difficulties. Because if you, you threw yourself uh, into your wife's arms, as we usually did, uh, and um, threw yourself into family life, totally for your time ashore then it was infinitely more difficult to handle the situation of going back on duty so I always had great difficulty with this I, I was always reluctant to commit myself totally to shore life and family and that kind of thing because of the fear of not being able to handle this when you had to leave it. I suppose my family suffered because I wasn't at home. To what degree they suffered because of my slight reticence, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I think my children loved me. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, hopefully my wife still loves me. It's entity's job. I thought it could be made a lot easier for the men from head office. I thought they were put through an awful lot of hardship that they didn't deserve, first of all, and that needn't have been. Everybody asks themselves occasionally, what on earth am I doing here? Why am I doing this? But it's only natural that you would, and... Um, 
I don't know, I must have very quickly reconciled myself to the fact that this is what I did and this is what I was supposed to be good at. That's why they kept me. So, obviously, it was the thing to continue doing. You never, at least I never, uh, failed to appreciate a sunset or a sunrise. You never get used to it. It is a resurrection every morning. It really is. And each night. Um, and probably that was the loneliest time in a lighthouse at sunset. Because not alone was the sun going down, but it was the start of your night's work. Now, this was the thing I used to do. I don't know if any other woman or any other person did it. Brendan did it as well. As soon as he arrived in the lighthouse, and as soon as he left the door, I had a book and I'd write. So many days, so many weeks, days, hours, and it should come down to minutes that he was coming home. And you crossed them off. At times I said that was a bad thing to do. And yes, when I'd make a break, and I'd say, no. It was better that way I knew that the time was coming down. He seemed to love it in the beginning and it seemed to be just the last word to him. But the job came before anything else. The job was forced. The job was like, well, I suppose most men are that way. The job. He was home in February and he was to retire in, in May the 21st of May was his birthday, so I think that was it. He would be the age then. And he was to retire, but he was to return from the shore duty to Wicklow Head uh, whenever his time was up. I forget how long he had to do, a week, a fortnight, more. But he died on the 15th of February. So he was March, April me that much time off retirement when he died I was absolutely shattered and the reason for it was that's what I'd live for every problem every change of station everything we did over the years, that was the one thought in my mind. We'll be together when he retires and this will be the end of this and we'll be living together when he retires. And I thought we'd do all the things that we couldn't do, you know, that you'd love to do and plan to do. That's the wave pump now that they own. Um, machine, a wave pump down with that, and had to be rewound every half hour. We still have a machine up here. This is the focal point of any lighthouse, the lantern. And uh, the lens here are set in a mercury. So you have no friction whatsoever in the, in the, in the revolution as it revolves and um, 
this was the old uh, method of, 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 um, of uh, turning the lens and it still works. Uh, it's a therapeutic piece now, but that, that had to be rebound every half hour. So it meant that you had to, three or four hours of duty, you either sat up here or you went up and down every half hour. So that was a fairly, a fairly hard task and up and down those steps. As you see now, we're at the, we have two electric motors driving the lens at the moment. So that, that, that was a method of rewinding. That had to be done every half hour. And of course, it had to be kept constant because every light has its character. And um, this one is a flash every, every uh, three seconds. So it had to be controlled here by the governor. And uh, it had to be spot on to give the light its character because it, it, it would be a serious breach if the light was out of character. And the box signal is the same. The box signal has uh, two, two blasts every 45 seconds. And that's recognizable as well in fog. Now I'll give you a test on this fog signal. Well, this is the Hook Lighthouse, where my father was born. My grandfather, his father, was a lighthouse keeper here. They were stationed at the Hook when he was born. And um, shortly afterwards, my grandmother died here. She's buried not too far away from here, so we have connections with this lighthouse, yes. Going back a long way. <laughs> 